Welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. We've kind of uh, got just got past the introduction. Um, I, my friend Francois, once after my first book that I wrote, um, imagine I said to him. I just feel that it was just the introduction. He gave me such wise counsel. He said, that's what it will always be. It's supposed to just be an introduction. Um, it's like that icon thing, pointing beyond itself. Eh? You go and have an experience yourself. Are there any... Um, are there any comments, questions, um, things you want to share... Um, I might sit a bit for a change. Is that okay? Change the. Shall I go slowly with the camera? <laughs> um, and really, I've got nothing to lose, so ask whatever you want to. You know, I might know or don't know it, or um, obviously, you know, if it's something contextual to what we've discussed this morning that sometimes helps. <laughs> so, I, yeah. what, what, what was your background, like how did you grow into yes. um, how you see things now? Yes. Or, or have you always seen things like I had my doctrine sorted out at five. Okay. No. <laughs> so I grew up um, kind of in a Christian home, um, Pentecostal, charismatic, word of faith, all those kind of movements. And I guess it was in my teenage years that I can point towards an experience that was one of many that had a dramatic shift. But within this religious world, I, I kind of whether it's intentional or unintentional, I think many Christians get the impression that if you can just sin less or be more holy, God will be closer to you and do more good things for you. And so as a teenager, I came to this place where I was tired of this up-and-down experience of God where I might have a weekend of great thrills and excitement, but then it's back to the normal life and God seems to disappear. Um, from my awareness and so I thought well this time I'm going to give it a, a proper go I'm going to really try my best not to sin I'll even get the diary and see how long can I go without sinning and um, it was I'm sure I could break that record quick <laughs> but um, I remember one day just falling down in my room on my bed thoroughly disappointed um, with myself, and it was in this very moment of disappointment, this moment in which I was absolutely sure that God did also disapprove <laughs> of who I am, what I am, that I had the experience of Jesus standing at the edge of my bed, just with the biggest smile and acceptance and it was such a surprise because surely he should at least feel about me 
even, even worse than what I felt about me. But in that moment, I realized that um, even if I turned my back on him and ran the other way, he would love me just the same. <laughs> and I guess what happened in that moment is my spirituality changed from a focus on, on behavior, focus on sin, focus on trying to live a right, right way. It changed into an experience of falling in love. <laughs> and by falling in love, I forgot about sin, forgot about all that other stuff. I forgot about the notebook. I went months, I probably sinned, but I didn't even know it because, you know, I was just so <laughs> in love. <laughs> and um, very soon afterwards, um, I, you know, that, that had a dramatic effect on how I would present the gospel as well. And so it was such a privilege to um, meet my wife and also meet, uh, just before that, meet Franz with a toy um, where there was such resonance. So this is like 30 years ago, something. Um, Mary Ann and I, when we met, I guess the, the scripture that we got so excited about this in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 18, 19, 20, that, that God reconciled the world to himself, not holding their trespasses against them. And so from my tradition, I was used to first make sure people know how bad they are, how evil they are and where they're heading. Um, and then when you've got them as scared as you can possibly get them, then you offer them an opportunity to get out of it. Our approach completely changed. We, we kind of realized if God embraced me while I was at my worst, how, what an insult it would be to offer a, any lesser acceptance of anyone we meet. <laughs> if he's not holding the sin of the world against him, but has embraced him, uh, and he never had to reconcile himself to the world. He, he reconciled the world to himself because he, he's not the one who created distance. <laughs> and so that changed fundamentally how we would present the gospel. Of course we want people to, to accept this love. You know? Of course you want people to embrace this goodness. But if I related to how I fell in love with Mary Ann, um, I was still in school but my last few weeks and, and uh, knowing that the next year I was going to go to Bible school, I wasn't quite sure yet. And the one day I just went, uh, while I was in the bathroom, I just said, Lord, am I going to get married? Because I just want to run with this gospel, do things, and I, I just don't. And I got such a definite yes that I had the boldness to say, with whom? <laughs> now, all of our stories are different. I just relate my story to illustrate the point. And um, I just had this name drop in my spirit, Mary Ann. And, but I didn't know a Mary Ann. Um, we're in an Afrikaans community. It will be Marianne of Anna Marie, but not Mary Ann. <laughs> 
And so I thought, Mary Ann, do, do I know Mary Ann? And I kind of walked back to the room because I remember getting a cassette tape from France on them. And at the end, a few of the young people gave testimonies. And they introduced themselves. And I thought maybe one of them was called Mary Ann. But as I walked to the room, the phone rang. And the person said, hi, you don't know me. My name's Mary Ann. <laughs> oh, well, I do. And then I thought, I better shut up before I scare Sally. <laughs> and um, she just had to phone me to tell me what to bring where if I signed up for outreach that we were going to do into Africa. And we had a wonderful conversation. And um, we met a couple of weeks later and I'm the whole time thinking, you know, when I first saw her, I thought, I'm so glad you revealed to me, you know me so well, Lord. <laughs> that's my wife. If you didn't reveal it to me, I would have revealed it to you. But that's her. <laughs> and um, I, I was just thinking the whole time, is this my wife? But you know, she had no interest in men at that stage. <laughs> Far too many prophecies, you know, this one, that one, and the other one. I think by the fourth one, she told the person, that's not prophetic, that's pathetic, you know. <laughs> and so um, she wasn't interested in relationship much, but we had a wonderful time sharing. But nothing, the sparks didn't fly from her side, from my side it did. And so after, after about three weeks when the whole team was going to disperse and go to their different towns again, that morning I said, God, did I even hear you right? I thought, thought you said this is her, but, and you know, I don't want to go to her and say the Lord spoke to me. You, you want the person to fall in love with you, not because God told them you better <laughs> And uh, did I hear you right? Is this, um, huh, is this her? And uh, I just flipped my Bible open because I'm 18. I, I still have difficulty thinking husband, wife. That's things for old people. Um, but I said, did I hear you right? Is this my wife? And as I flipped the Bible open, it says, husbands, you can win the submission of your wives through an open display of your love. And I thought, maybe I haven't displayed my love openly enough. Maybe it was too hidden. <laughs> so that evening I thought, oh. I said, Lord, please create the opportunity. And, and she came back with a pickup truck and some mattresses on the back because we were a whole lot, lot of young people sleeping in the dormitory. And she asked if I could go get the mattress. So I went out and I said, Please bring her out because I don't want to say this in front of anyone else. And, and she came out and uh, I said, I've got something to share with you. And I was so nervous because, you know, she might just fall down with laughter or um, <laughs> send me packing. And um, she said, yes, let me just go get my Bible. I said, no, you don't need your Bible. Just listen. <laughs> And uh, I said, I am madly, totally, completely head over heels in love with you. And she folded double with laughter. She was <laughs> laughing. And I felt so embarrassed. I took the mattress and started walking. <laughs> and after she could compose herself from this hysterical laughter, she um, said, wait, wait. 
the feelings mutual. I said, what? <laughs> and she couldn't believe what came out of her mouth. She, she would, the feeling, the feelings mutual. <laughs> and you know how different it would have been if I went to Mary Ann and said, you know, the Lord revealed to me that I'm your husband, you're my wife, and, and I love you, and it is his will that you should love me. <laughs> and, um, but never mind, I'll give you a few days to think about it. But should you make the wrong choice, I will torment you forever. <laughs> no? And unfortunately, that is how we've presented the gospel. We've kind of just told people, God loves you, but really, you should love him. You rotten thing, why don't you love him more? Why don't you believe right? Why don't you do all these things? And we kind of presented people with conditions before we presented them with the love of God. And, and so what changed in our approach is we don't think the gospel demands faith. We think the gospel supplies faith. The gospel is this open declaration of the love of God that has within it every ingredient to awaken love in those who hear it. Um, so, that, you know, as 18-year-olds, we go and do mission work in Africa in a radically different way. <laughs> I remember in Zimbabwe, the pastors being perplexed because we would go into a uh, you know, one of the local just parks. And before the people said the right prayer, do the right thing, we would pray for healing. Today it's kind of common. But in those days it was, you didn't lead him to the Lord first. And you just, but it, it seemed like God just didn't mind. He just healed people and restored people and whether they had the right belief yet or not. That was really the opportunity to win their ears. And so along the way, um, when we had a family, we actually lived in the UK from 2001 to 2010. Um, I went into a normal career of computer science. I became what they call an enterprise architect for um, legal in general, one of your big insurance companies here. But had that desire to just go again. And so in 2010, the kids moved out of, um, out of school, more independent, and we decided to go again. And we found ourselves mostly in groups like this where we could have very real conversations. And although we were with churches, mostly over weekends, during the week, we were with those hundreds and thousands of people who no longer um, relate to a local uh, institution. So especially in the States, there's you know, many people who are not in churches, but they, they still know that we want fellowship, we want community, and, and how does that work? But being in those groups, you're no longer in that position of just a monologue. It is people who come out of everything that they know is wrong, so they've got a lot of questions and a lot of accusations and a lot of things. So we were suddenly involved in this continual conversation where we, again, scrutinized every part of our beliefs and faith. And maybe the biggest transformation theologically that came in the past uh, four years is 
somebody introduced me to Rene Girard, um, who, whose ideas have had an enormous impact on every leg of the human sciences, uh, humanities, so psychology, anthropology, sociology, theology, philosophy, all of it has hugely benefited from Rene Girard's work. Basically because he, he proposed a way in which human culture developed and what is it that makes us human, which is obviously very fundamental to our understanding of scripture and our understanding of being human. And that's where the book Desire Found Me developed from. A, a, a totally, um, for me, it was a totally new way to understand atonement, understand the human condition. But yeah, right at the heart of it, I think what lies at the heart of it is that experience of a God that continually surprised me with being better than the doctrines I held around him. And I continue kind of just put the doctrines to one side and think, okay, well, I can't let go of his doctrine. I mean, that's fundamental, but we'll just put it into a cupboard somewhere and continue experiencing God. But after a while, your cupboards are so full of irrelevant doctrines that you kind of pay lip service to, um, but you really don't believe them anymore. That there came a time where I, I said, okay, now I'm going to examine each one of these ideas. <laughs> where these ideas came from, how they developed, why I believed what I believed, what's still relevant. And so that was a few years in the making of a process of reevaluating those beliefs. And the end result is if your heart is kind of in your head, it's time to change your theology. You know? It's time to change your thinking to this God who says so much more. Yeah. So that's a bit of the story. <laughs> we, we started traveling in 2010, kind of got rid of everything just carried everything we had in our suitcases, spent two, three days at the community to the next, and it was f uh, quite a fun adventure. can be quite tiring after a few years as well. <laughs> but the beginning of this year, we found a um, place to rent in South Africa, so we kind of settled again and have a home. Yeah. Awesome. I guess one of the big things that happened for me is that my approach to scripture, instead of it being a monologue, I've started appreciating this developing conversation. And I think the conversation has its crescendo in Jesus um, and it continues beyond. But to, to take, for instance, one idea, um, the idea of God and violence. Uh, and so if we look at the oldest text in the Old Testament, they portray God most violently. So there's text that says, I w I'm so mad, I'm going to wipe out the righteous and the wicked together. I don't know, care who you are, I'm just too mad to care. 
and I'm just going to kill you all. Um, then a bit later on, um, God is perceived a little bit less violent. So uh, he still gets mad. He's still going to kill a lot of people, but it's going to be the unrighteous, not the righteous. Uh, and then the later on scriptures, um, God's still mad and lots of people are going to suffer, but he's not going to get his hands dirty. He's going to hand over one nation to another nation. And then ultimately in Jesus, we come to a God who would rather suffer our violence than participate in it. A God who, who totally rejects a God who's implicated in our violence. So as I read the stories, I had to think, either God really had anger issues and he's been, you know, he's been getting help and getting <laughs> counseling throughout the ages and progressively getting better. And in Jesus, he totally repented of his violence and he promises not to be bad anymore. And from now on, I'll be a loving God. Either that's what's happening or it is people's perception of God who has changed. And, and we started realizing through these stories that maybe we've projected our own evil, our own violence onto God. And, you know, scriptures like in Lamentations, Yahweh told me to cook my child and eat it. I can now read the text like that and say, I can't even imagine this difficult situation in which either I'm going to die or my child. What, what happens to a parent psychologically with every bite of your own child? <laughs> But maybe the only way in which that human being could still have some kind of semblance of sanity is to project that evil and say, I didn't do it. Yahweh told me to cook this child and eat it. So I can now look at that scriptures and instead of having this very flat understanding of inspiration every word is what God said. I can now look and say, maybe we should acknowledge what was happening here. But there's a story unfolding and this story finds its conclusion in the most amazing God who is generous to the wicked and the righteous. He sends his rain and the sunshine to both. And, and so I can see how the story develops. Yeah. Very good question. So I think what Jesus brings is such a unique revelation. Revelation that starts in the Old Testament, you know, it's not, it's not all wrong perception, it's a conversation. So there's these beautiful texts of God's mercies on you every morning. Um, uh, the conversation's probably beautifully illustrated in Job, you know, Job, uh, where, where there's various opinions and things said about God. And God shows up in chapter 42, verse 7, speaking to Eliabaz and says, what you said about me is just wrong. Now, we've got what Eliabaz said about God recorded and written in the Bible. So, in effect, God's saying, there's been things said about me and written in the Bible that's wrong. <laughs> but I can look at the whole story and say this is inspired. This is a story, a conversation that's unfolding. And, and we get to this conclusion in Jesus, but it's no longer just that flat kind of interpretation of every text needs to be right. <laughs>
I can look at texts and say sometimes they've got different ideas. Sometimes they contradict one another. Yeah. <laughs> Any other ideas? Yeah. Talking about Genesis and um, like the way that we interpret it, like the story that comes from it, really changes our perception of who God is. Um, and one of the, like, I guess, one of the really powerful narratives that we have, yes. in, like Western Christianity at least, is of like original sin mm. uh, and like this understanding of like where like evil came from, mm. like what is evil, even what is I don't even what even is evil, but. Yeah. This whole understanding of suffering and of where that darkness and confusion came from. Yeah. Like in kind of your in kind of your interpretation, which like views like God there in the chaos and the chaos isn't bad. Mm. Like how does then like suffering etc. fit into yeah. that? Because that, I mean, yes. I love that interpretation. I've thought about it a bit, but. How how this evil spontaneously know. combust yeah, in that well, situation? Well, I mean, before, like, yeah. that kind of like interpretation, uh, like of original sin, I always thought like, how did that get created? You know, like, yes. it's kind of found off as like an angel yes. fell. Yeah. You know, and, like, but that never satisfied me. Anyway, yeah. So I'm not sure there is an answer. That's what I'm saying to my people. Yeah. Now, but, and um, maybe I can just give you some thoughts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it might not be a complete answer. Yeah. Yeah, I've got maybe tomorrow we'll tackle a bigger subject on what I think led to that confusion of good and evil. Um, the the conclusion of Genesis three, I think, was very radical in their world as well. In a world that wanted to project evil on gods, or what they, kind of the same thing we do today. It's either the devil or it's God, or it's other people, it's not me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, um, we, we're still in that place of projection. Um, and so the Genesis 3 makes this astounding suggestion in the context of a God who created everything good, yeah. who is good, who even made you good. Its suggestion is that evil has its origin in human beings confusing knowledge that there's something that we do as our desires are twisted that makes the possibility of evil realized so first of all that chaos that is not evil that that in effect is neutral i think the very uh, the very nature of love is to give real freedom. And, and so that freedom has, kind of includes the possibility of evil as well. Um, doesn't control, manipulate in one area. So I think that was a radical suggestion that evil doesn't have its origin in other gods, in the pagan gods, in the other world or whatever. It has to do with a confused humanity and twisted desire. And so the first place where sin is mentioned in the Bible is in the act of violence. It's when Cain kills Abel. Interesting that sin is not mentioned even in the partaking of that wrong knowledge. That, that's almost the precursor. 
but it's the theological child of this confusion that gives birth to the first murderer, um, which, by the way, is an idea that the Bible has in common with all mythology, that it is murder that is the basis of all culture, that the first city is ba founded by the first murderer. Um, but if you look at the whole Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, the problem of evil is addressed more specifically and more specifically, and it actually, the conclusion in chapter 11 just before um, Noah is so clear. What, what actually is destroying our whole world? The desires of men's hearts were twisted, and violence covered the earth. And so they pinpoint evil, its most real incarnation is violence. Um, that's how they started thinking. Now, later on the story will develop, later, especially because, you know, ancient Hebrew religion was still very much embroidered in polytheistic thinking. So they're going to make a journey from polytheism to monotheism. And, and that changes your thinking about evil as well. Um, but I think that was a radical new suggestion, is that we can't just blame maybe what the pagan religions blamed other gods. Maybe we just blame demons today. But it's the same kind of process. Evil is out there. It's not, and Genesis makes this radical statement. Now, evil is most real in the unjustified violence of man. <laughs> James write it, writes it as well in James 3. Where does all the conflict, the wars, and these things come from? Is it not because you desire, but you do not have? this unsatisfied, twisted desire that causes the conflict. Um, so, yeah, it is such a big question. And um, to actually take it further, uh, to understand where the human stories and how the human story developed and where the mythology comes from only enriches it. Maybe we can touch on that more tomorrow as well. Yeah. Does that help a bit? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's a very tough question, isn't it? Because yeah. essentially even having that as a framework for thinking about yeah. like evil, or, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That it's yeah. our fault. Like, and it, it's almost like, I mean, like from reading uh, your book, Desire Family, that yeah. like really raised your rod. And yeah. That moment where you're just like, we killed Jesus. Yeah. And it's not like <laughs> I wasn't aware that happened before, but like we always make it about like, we couldn't help ourselves because it was God's plan. Yeah, like we, it's, yeah. we view it like God killed him. But I, I, I read it and I was like, wow, like, we yeah. did that. Like, that's us. Like, that's yeah. who, like, you know. So I think that helps reframe that kind of thing. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I still struggle, though. Like, I still, I don't really know how it fits to have, like, because so much of my thinking has changed because I fundamentally just met with a God of love. Yes. And I just, I can't really... Like, I mean, maybe similar to your story, but different. Like, I just had all these thoughts of who God was. And I just thought, I can't really engage with that because I know it's about to unravel. So I'm just yes. going to, like, I'm just going to keep hanging out with Jesus then. Come back to these things when I can cope with it, really. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but 
But I, I guess like within that, like just God is so good. Like, he I, like, is. Everything that doesn't, he every is. concept of him which doesn't fit with that, I just, I just don't. Yeah. Just, I just doesn't seem real to me. Yes. But I think the only thing that I, like I struggle with within that is like where did all that confusion come from? Mm. Like, or where I don't know. Like, yeah. How is that possible to have come from someone so good? But I guess that's that's like trying to see back into our past without having. So maybe if so maybe this would help. Maybe if there was no perfect beginning. Yeah. Maybe if if what this Rishi suggested yeah. is the mo- and what all of science suggests today is that the most original, the further back we go into our history, the more chaotic and the more violent it becomes. And we actually at the place today we where it's the most ordered and the the least violent it's ever been. Um, And so maybe that view of a God who continually is the possibility of greater good, greater beauty, greater meaning calling us forward, um, then makes even more sense than thinking it started perfectly and then it it got messed up. Maybe it, it was just absolute chaos and neutral in what was possible in the beginning. So to kind of introduce you maybe a little bit more on that same trend with what we'll touch on tomorrow uh, uh, and kind of answer the question a bit more as well. One of the interesting things that um, was explored by René Girard even before he was a Christian and it was his study of the scripture that brought him to like an intellectual conversion. But he studied all of ancient origin uh, myths and he saw that they've got similarities and asked what are the actual events that gave birth to these myths and combined that with the rituals, some of the rituals, very ancient ones still happening today. And then archaeology reveals this astounding fact that every new civilization that they discover, at the heart of that civilization is the practice of human sacrifice. So how would human sacrifice be the origin of civilization? And the Bible confirms the same idea. Mm, How much can I go to in now? But, But the idea that from the very beginning when humans exerted their violence and, uh, on, onto a scapegoat. Uh, and instead of us, you know, if two primitive tribes met, the result was of, often violence and they would destroy one another. But somewhere across the world, they found a new solution. Instead of just everyone killing everyone, let's choose one, a scapegoat. So Caiaphas wasn't the first person who thought of it might be better for one man to die for the nation than f- for the whole nation to perish. That is the idea, the, the spontaneous solution that has presented itself all across human history to different groups. Instead of all of us killing one another, let's find a scapegoat. We can exert all our frustration there and most of us will be safe. But when we come face to face with this corpse, which awakens our most primordial fear, we ask ourselves, you know, what, what did he do to deserve this death? Because I don't want to die <laughs> like this. Now, the most 
obvious answer as to why is this person dead is because I killed him. But because we don't like that answer, we change the question and we say, what did he do to deserve this death? You know, what, what justice did he offend? And so we kind of develop all our little stories and legends and taboos. I saw him stand beneath that tree and, and break a twig. And now in that culture, breaking a twig from that tree is sacred. You can't do that. I saw him. All the stories are different, but in the act of violence, they're all the same. Somehow this person is guilty, he offended the gods, and he deserved his death. And it's almost in that moment where we cannot accept that this violence and this evil was birthed in us, that we project it onto gods. And so most of the gods are born as a projection of our own violence. So this is why most of the ancient gods are very violent. And they're nothing more than human projection. And so uh, obviously Jesus comes and brings us back to that most primordial event, the event of killing the scapegoat. And he kind of turns the whole thing around to show us where was God in this? God wasn't the one who justified your violence. God was the one suffering your violence. <laughs> um, so he turns that whole mythology around. So I think all the gods humans conceived of, it wasn't just a projection of our most beautiful, our most inspired thoughts. It most often began as the projection of the evil that we could not bear to see in ourselves. And we, we blamed the gods for this. Like that mother that said, God told me to eat my son. You know, this is something so horrible, I cannot accept it to be true about me. And so we project it onto God. And, um, yeah, a little bit of a history of you know, Rene Girard's thoughts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So definitely. So how the story develops, and and in the um, in the Hebrew understanding of that story, first of all, it was a loss of a promised land, and and they were going to return there. Um, so there is still that kind of uh, the fact that they deceived and then partakes of this knowledge does create a situation where they can no longer remain in that paradise. That's the very condition that robs them in the narrative of, of, that, um, of that perfect paradise that they were in. So, yes, that's part of the story. So they they then told to leave. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I understand your question correctly, if you want to help me understand it again. I thought, I thought we were now thinking that it wasn't perfect. Mm -hmm. 
so, so yes, so, so let, me, let me say it this way. So imagine this. In the Babylonian exile, about 580 BC, where Judah and Israel have got many stories, but they're now starting to stitch together. Um, and there's a few gaps in their stories. Um, for instance, uh, the, the Genesis narratives were quite, it's probably invented there, because unlike the, the other origin myths, all the other origin myths speaks about this primordial state of chaos, a creative act of violence, and the new communities created. But Israel's unique in that they had the, and the people that write those stories are the victors. You know, it's the people that survived. It's not the, the scapegoats. But Israel is unique in that they had their birth as an outcast nation. They had their birth as this race of slaves that's delivered from Egypt. And so that's why the oldest text in the Old Testament is things like the Song of Moses. It's those songs, those stories of deliverance. That's where their stories begin. But now, later on, as they put all these stories together, they're starting to develop origin stories that kind of subverts what the other stories are saying about God. The other origin stories that conceives God of God as violent, that conceives as evil, as, as something that's just present in the world that we can do nothing about. The Genesis stories is starting to suggest that maybe God is only good, his creation is only good, he can do something good with the chaos um, without using violence, that evil has its origin not in some supernatural beings, but in humans participating of a twisted knowledge. So these are stories that explores those themes um, with beautiful meaning coming out, especially if you see it in the context of the other stories that were told. Does that help yeah. a bit? Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. It was such a fun time with all of you this morning. Just so, um, so aware of this beautiful gospel, just resonating between us that there's um, this acknowledgement of of the possibility of who God is what he does thank you for lives. listening to the Destiny podcast for further information check out www.idestiny.org.uk